0: Head to the slash merch.
1: Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today.
0: And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great movies, so many great conversations, but it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: We had some great films in season eight that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals.
0: That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered. From season one up through our current season.
1: For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968.
0: We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right?
1: Don't you even get me started. (sighs) Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again?
0: Yes! Also, so
1: much better! <laughs> wait, wait, no! That's not what I... Uh,
0: <laughs> Planet of the Apes
1: kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait,
0: wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard?
1: They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books!
0: I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die
1: Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <sighs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel.
0: And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel, Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver.
1: We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight.
0: We haven't talked about Gaslight.
1: Stop gaslighting me. <laughs> Dive deeper into these books
0: and more adapted films at thenextreelcom slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast.
1: Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreelcom slash originals.
0: The next drill, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight in the show, Sergio Leone brings us a series of important object lessons in use of explosives to solve geopolitical challenges in the aptly titled Duck, You Sucker.
1: Sergio Leone, the master of adventure, who brought you a fistful of dollars. For a few dollars more. And the good, the bad, and the ugly now brings Rod Steiger and James Coburn together to blow you apart. <laughs>
0: All right, Andy. Uh, we landed in this
1: movie. Yep.
0: I feel like that's a that is that's the way I've been thinking about it. It's a movie that doesn't know its own name. Uh it's a movie with uh fantastic people uh, sounding ridiculous. It's a movie with uh one of the most cockamamie misplaced scores of any of the the spaghetti westerns any of the Leone films that we've watched. Uh it it that score <laughs> It rivals only one other Morricone film that I could think of. I wonder which one that is. <laughs> We're talking about Duck You Sucker, or A Fistful Dynamite, or Once Upon a Time the Revolution. Uh, why are we Why are we talking about this movie?
1: Well, uh, this is a part of our uh, of our series here. We're doing um, Leone's Once Upon a Time trilogy. Um, as you pointed out, this one was called Once Upon a Time, the Revolution, when it was released in France. Possibly the most apt name for the film once you've seen it. Uh, the yeah. other names, "Docu Sucker and A Fistful of Dynamite. Uh, "Docu Sucker is just a, a nonsensical name that happens to tie into some lines throughout the film. Uh, but it's, it's a weird title. Uh, we'll come back to that as to why it was called that. Um, A uh, Fistful of Dynamite. It was just called that specifically to uh, make audiences feel like it's more akin to the other films that Leone did, a.k.a. Fistful of Dollars in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's the revolution and it's, it's this connection in this final trilogy uh, that Leone kind of did with these stories about uh, much more serious topics than the previous films that he had done and this one is um you know just fits fits into that and you know i, I think largely it's a uh, a film to struggle through a little more than than some of his other films um and uh, more problematic for sure but i think it has some good qualities and and looking at everything that was going on in 1968 when all of this started and continuing through when this was actually released in uh, 1971. Uh, it was definitely a period of political instability, and so telling a story about revolution and this whole idea of um the you know kind of deconstructing the nature of revolution and how uh, it really brings nothing but uh but um, awfulness to everybody involved. I think that's kind of what Leone was maybe trying to do.
0: Yeah, and, and I think so. And I'm, you know, I I start out with a gaff at it, but uh, you know, this movie is is deeply aspirational. I mean, he's he he's very clearly uh, and uh, telling a a serious story and using this film to to kind of showcase, uh, you know the the political instability and the confusion of revolution and sort of saying, you know, this is what revolution looks like on the ground and it's dirty and gross and and nobody quite understands uh understands the mechanics of it they just understand the the emotion of it the feeling what it feels like um to be you know put in this place of subservience and um and and it's a statement of poverty it's a statement of what what poverty elevates what poverty motivates in humanity uh, and and I think it's uh you know I think it's a strong message and that's why this movie I find uh, overall, disappointing, because the film does not, in in my view, live up to the message that that comes across, and and I think that's sad, because especially coming off of the experience I had with Once Upon a Time in the West.
1: It is a more disappointing film. Um, I I still find myself enjoying it, and it's certainly as I've watched it uh, over uh, several you know decades now, um, uh, several times. I do find myself enjoying it more. I think there are a lot of strong elements within the film, uh, but certainly it just feels uh, problematic. Like Leone, um, uh, you know, had some issues trying to figure out how to tell this story, and it feels a little sloppier, honestly, than yeah. um, than some of his other films. But uh and and it's funny because Leone was never really a hugely poli- political person, and speaking about this film and how it may have some political messaging is kind of funny. But largely, Leone's real political message was to keep your head down, and that's uh, in, what the title was in in Italy. It was "Giù la testa," which is "keep mm-hmm. your head down." And uh, he kind of roughly translated that to duck you sucker, which he apparently thought was this hugely popular phrase that Americans said all the time. And so he's like, oh, we'll call it duck you sucker because everyone in America says that all the time. People are like, I don't know. Not really. And he's like, no, 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 it'll be perfect. And it's, that's it's what, not perfect. <laughs> it's not perfect. It turns, it's a terrible it title. Um, but... um. <laughs> Yeah, and and that was a message that he felt was strong, and you can certainly see that uh, as as we get to the end of the film and the title finally comes up. That whole idea of keeping your head down, um, you know, now that that John slash Sean is dead and and Juan is left there by himself, and, and you know, what do I do? And the title comes up, mm-hmm. Duck, you sucker. Or keep your head down. And that was Leone's real message. And that made a lot of people in Italy uh, upset because they felt like that's not what you do. You need to stand up to this stuff. And um, I, I think in his own country, it was it was uh, possibly a little more of a failure because of the way that that message was portrayed because people wanted to see him standing up. People wanted to see people standing up to these issues.
0: Well, and and is it that, that's my question for you, though, too, Andy, because I feel like as I'm watching this movie, I, you know, I, I kind of knew going in after doing a little bit of pre-reading that that's, that was the general sentiment, and I was surprised that over the overall arc of the film... Uh, Our our characters do stand up. They do get involved. You know, they they say, duck, you sucker, literally about, you know, use of explosives. But the entire, um, you know, John storyline is to rope him back into someone else's revolution. Now, it's this the act that, you know, here's this 'er ne'er-do-well sort of character who's roaming the globe trying to stay out of trouble and, and duck. Right, he's trying to duck his the the um, you know police who are after him uh, all over the world as a terrorist. Now he's he he can't get out of the experience of acting as a revolutionary because you know he's he's constantly you know roped into doing the right thing, and I say sort of the moral right thing: standing up for the little people, um, standing up for the oppressed, uh, using his skills for the, the right of the many. So it's actually counter. The title itself is counter to the the message that apparently Leone was trying to send. Like none of the characters really did in a compelling way what he wanted to tell them to do.
1: Well, they didn't, but I, I think the idea of the film is: look at what happened to these people because they didn't keep their heads down. If Juan had only kept his head down and stayed out of this whole mess, maybe his whole family would have been alive. Maybe this whole issue that that uh, uh, John had with um, his uh, the friends, friend slash girlfriend in Ireland wouldn't have ended on such a tragic note. Maybe he wouldn't be dead if they had just um, kind of put their heads in the sand and not paid attention to all of the stuff that was going on around them. And, I mean, even the quote at the very beginning that we have uh, by uh, Mao Zedong, M- Mao Zedong is, Tung, yeah. is all about how a revolution really is just a violent act. And it it is just, I mean, that's the nature of it. It's not something that's meant to be. Um, uh, glorified or anything. It just purely is a violent act. And we see that here as everybody is getting killed constantly throughout this film. And if they had only stayed away, perhaps it would have, um, they would have uh, maybe still been suffering, but at least alive. And I think that's what he was no. going for.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I feel like that's part of the the, of why this is so convoluted, because he made John a hero and he made like it's very easy to walk out of this movie and see John having stood up for the little people of Mexico in their revolution uh, shot in the back, uh, having died, you know, the death of a hero. He died doing what was right. It's very easy to to walk out with that intention. I totally hear you and I hear that there you know all of the titles and the I mean <laughs> are we doing the Mao quotes at the beginning of this western movie, I mean that that sends a particular message uh in itself. But sure. I I feel like it doesn't outweigh the fact that he just displayed for us a western hero doing the western right thing.
1: Well, maybe um but it also I think in there you end up getting when it comes to John's character it gets tied into this whole flashback storyline that we have with him which and is it's, yeah mm-hmm. it's an odd little flashback storyline that I don't think I fully understood listening to people talking about it in the uh in the special features um because this 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 uh, uh extended version of the film this restored version that we both watched has a lot more of these flashbacks in particular, this last one, which is much longer where we see John, um, you know, kissing his girlfriend back in Ireland. And then all of a sudden he stops kissing her and his best friend who's also there, he starts kissing his girlfriend and then John is smiling about it. And we're like, Oh, wait a minute. So this is a weird little threesome going on here. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a confusing Moment to have in the flashback here, trying to read exactly what's happening here, and I guess the the intention at least the way that these historians are describing it is that this is possibly why John is uh seems to be so um, uh, you know constantly thinking about the past and and never really settled because. The whole idea of this threesome in the past, uh, the fact that this scene was uh, in the film um, because it hadn't been until it was recently restored in the last um, couple decades, um, it perhaps implies that maybe John had some jealousy here. And he is actually the one who ratted out his friend to um, to um, to the other side. And that's why his friend is dragged in all beaten up. And, and then when John sees that he goes and shoots the guards and shoots his friend and everything. But that's why he's kind of carrying around this guilt with him as he's, as he's driving around in Mexico. Um, I don't think I really saw that. I think it was a little confusing. Um, but again, it goes to this whole idea of this revolution and it, it, it just is a mess. It makes a mess of things.
0: It does make a mess of things, but I think when I watch movies like this, I I want to at least have a through line. And and that sequence you bring up, that particular flashback when John ends up assassinating his friend and the police with him, uh is uh a, it it's one that hit me sideways. I didn't see it coming, and then I totally saw it coming as they're looking at each other and doing the incredibly slow motion nods and uh it it's the the slow motion is is just terrible. And um and and I still don't feel like I have a complete intuitive thread about what the point was of all of those flashbacks what are we trying to learn uh that you know he really needs us to know to keep the movie mo- moving forward to keep the the story moving forward that comes out of those flashbacks i I don't see it 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 wasn't particularly beautiful it wasn't it was just a uh these are just punctuation marks in the uh story that caused the film to slow down um and and so I I, I don't get it
1: And it's done in a way because of this whole threesome, all of a sudden it throws this confusing element into those flashbacks that I don't think necessarily needed to be there and don't necessarily help. If anything, as you're clearly pointing out, it just befuddles you and and it makes it a much more confusing element of the story that I feel like shouldn't be there and isn't helping. Um, Exactly. It isn't helping. And if if, if, there were, if they were meant to um, uh, kind of do that and that was kind of the logic, it probably would have helped to not have them all silent flashbacks with just music, but to actually give us some of the story so we could have pieced some of that together. And right. that's what I mean this film feels a little sloppy. Like some of that stuff I feel like he's handled a lot better in past films. When we had the flashbacks in just the last film, Once Upon a Time in the West, when we finally get to those final flashbacks and we see uh, Henry Fonda's character Frank coming into focus and we see that scene play out with a young Harmonica and his brother, um, we all of a sudden everything is put into place. And I feel like maybe they were trying to do that here with this particular film, but it just creates more confusion and I don't think it helps. You you wanted to talk a little bit about vulgarity. It was just definitely a different tone, and it's interesting because I mean it's definitely a more vulgar film language-wise, um, and a lot of that ended up getting trimmed as it was going through its multiple uh, incarnations of release. But also, it's just like starting the film off in such a vulgar way, where we have this this uh, this um, the peasant urinating on ants and it's just yeah it's such a like a strange way to start the film and it makes it hard to kind of like this character right out of the gate as he's doing this and then he does this whole thing with this carriage and this robbery and this rape and it's like gosh this is a tough character to have to be hanging out with for a little while he's interesting and i think rod steiger actually brings quite a bit of interesting stuff to him as a character but I couldn't help but think that as I watched the opening of this film, that Leone was really tapping into Sam Peckinpah. And we talked about how Leone was a uh, was very much a fan of looking at older films that he was such a big fan of and finding ways to kind of incorporate those into his own storytelling. This now feels like he's kind of moved past the John Fords and and those filmmakers that he had been looking at. And now is like looking at a, a filmmaker who's doing a little more serious storytelling and darker storytelling and more vulgar storytelling and looking at Sam Peckinpah because this just really felt like that and certainly gave me the vibes of of how The Wild Bunch starts. And it's yeah. it's really interesting to see how he's doing that and keeps this film feeling a lot more kind of that in that vulgar world. And I don't know if he's trying to do that because our main character is a peasant. Like, is that is he trying to say something about the vulgarity of of the lower class or something? I'm not quite sure, but it is an interesting way to kind of um, build this uh, this story.
0: It is. I you know, I I actually found that open to be really interesting. And in in many respects, that's that's the stuff I liked of Rod Steiger the most. You know, until the the very, toward the very end of the film, Uh, I I thought the introduction of him and and what he has done to just, you know, uh, to damage his family, to create, you know, little um, terrorists out of his kids, you know, I I think that's a really interesting sort of fabric that he weaves for us in the very beginning here. And the, uh, you know... The, the takeover of the carriage the most amazing carriage in the west uh, <laughs> it's like a museum uh, inside the the carriage as everybody's kind of doing their thing and eating their little meals and they're all horrible horrible people I mean if you could ever hang a flag on on elite uh, you know these are the people who would wear it um, and, and they welcome uh, him they welcome Juan into the carriage uh, actually it, it seems like on a uh, some sort of a uh, little bit of a vindictive welcome, right? The the carriage driver says, "Oh, I can't wait to see their faces when they see you," right. and uh, and and it turns out, yeah, it's because they're he, he's got this sort of barefoot peasant that they're throwing into this this uh, carriage full of elites, and then we get into this weird ASMR racist food show. Can can we talk about that? <laughs> like I like how you describe it.
1: Uh, well, it's the it's, worst Food Network show <laughs> ever. <laughs> this absolutely has to be on the list for our Saturday matinee option, like list options is disgusting eating scenes. <laughs> yeah. It's, oh, you're so right. It's bad. It's, uh, it's horrifying to watch and intentionally so. It's, it's just. I could not help. Again, talking about how he was um, uh, looking at films of Peckinpah, this really reminded me of of films of Buñuel. And uh, particularly, I mean, we had talked about Viridiana on this show, and it, it had a feel of that sort of, you know, the elite were disgusting pigs. And I thought that was actually a really interesting way to play this scene, um, as disgusting and disturbing as it was to watch.
0: Well, and and the way they shot it, right—the
1: way it was shot and cut, the yeah. uh,
0: those incredible close-ups on mouths, right, as they're eating and putting food in their mouth, and then the camera would linger on her mouth as she would put like a cherry in her mouth, and you'd see the the juice kind of cresting her lips as she was sucking on. I mean, it it is, uh, it, it's really tough for people with food anxieties. Don't watch this movie; <laughs> it's really <laughs> tough to get through. Uh, but again, it hammers home the central kind of ideological message of this movie and that is where this is going to be a movie about you know the rich and the poor uh the educated and the non-educated the the you know and and just a, a study of of what poverty does to people and i think that's that in in fact is fascinating
1: not just that but also uh, which one will say he has his whole diatribe about revolution and what it does to them, and 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 how you know, the poor people get involved in it, and the rich people push them to do it. And he's just like, but what happens to the poor people? They end up dead, exactly, be- because right. the rich people use the poor people as pawns. And it's the same thing that you know I, I would say that a, a country will do with its uh, soldiers and and in military is they recruit uh, young people to go in and do it. So all of the rich people don't have to, the rich and and old people don't have to. I I think that's also part of the point here is watching these people who are completely separated from this whole revolution that's happening in Mexico. You know, this, this whole idea of, of the Zapata uh, and the, uh, uh, the rest of all this, the revolution, um, uh, revolutionary acts happening across this country as the, I think it was the Huerta uh, mm-hmm. regime was, was fighting back um, and everything was collapsing. I mean, this is a carriage of people who are completely disconnected from anything dealing with reality. And it was interesting to see it like this, this mansion floating across the the, the desert, you know, it was, it was a strange way to depict it again. Right. Continuing to remind me of Buñuel. So
0: let's talk a little bit more about Rod Steiger as this as this kind of uh, Zapata figure. Um, what? Uh, I had trouble. I had trouble with Steiger, and I I love Rod Steiger, and this was not an easy watch.
1: It's it certainly is easier the more I've watched it. I find um, fewer and fewer problems with uh with it as i continue and uh it's it's not so bad now i don't find it as much (laughs) but it is not as good as it would have been if eli wallach had done it i know he was originally the uh the choice for the role and cast in the role and then due to unfortunate circumstances with the uh the studio um ended up getting replaced by somebody with a little more heft uh with their name
0: well that was really unfortunate. my understanding is that they the problem with the studio was simply that they uh that, that uh Steiger owed him a movie. And so they they said we're not gonna underwrite this movie unless Steiger's in it, so Wallach's out.
1: Yeah. It's frustrating the way that sometimes the business end um works with the creative side of things. Right. And in and this is a case where I think it did hurt it. I mean, again, I don't mind him in the film. I actually kind of like him as this uh, down-on-his-luck um, uh, Mexican peasant robber. He's, he's a kind of fun, but I just feel as I watch it that, you know, it really fits with Eli Wallach. And once you know that Eli Wallach, that whole uh, kind of Tuco character, was meant to to kind of be in the film, um, it, it just it would have worked so well. And it's, it is frustrating to see that this is how it happened.
0: Well, and so we have Steiger as Juan and the opening sequence we were just talking about includes, um, a a strange and
1: disturbing rape sequence. It really is. Um, it's disturbing and it's, it's not disturbing because of its graphic nature or anything, but I think what just disturbs me is again, this is our protagonist and here he is raping this rich woman, Mm -hmm. um, but that the the storytellers use the the awful tactic after the fact that the rape has happened to have the woman. It seems like there's this bit of uh, she's a, a bit enamored with him afterward, as if that yeah. you know, oh okay, he's our protagonist, so I'm going to his like masculinity
0: him won me over, right? And yeah, it just it's it, it just
1: ends up feeling, even knowing that it's you know a a 37 year old film doesn't help or 47 whatever it is it still doesn't help it it really still makes me struggle a little bit with that particular uh, element of the story
0: i've got a few other highlights and just just highlight sequences for me when you talk about things that like this in this case the rape sequence at the beginning it doesn't work for me and i find it really disappointing but later in the film we have um a, a sequence where juan returns to uh the cave and he he sees something we don't know what he sees uh until john gets back and and juan picks up a gun and leaves and then we get the sequence where john wanders through the cave and sees what juan had seen and it turns out the entire village is in there uh having been assassinated
1: well the the village i mean it's really the um all of the uh, it's his family. It's his family. Everybody yeah. who's basically in the part of the revolution on their side, like right. that, their whole their whole team, has basically yeah. been massacred team, in the cave. Team one, yeah. It's a horrifying scene uh, to to see, and and seeing what happened. And there actually was a, a massacre in a grotto in Italy during World War II that would have everybody would have recognized this as kind of a. A tribute to that, and it would have kind of upset people seeing this. um It's interesting though because uh, we've talked about Leone and his patience as a filmmaker, and how he really plays with his reveals. Often in his films, he'll he'll have something happen, and you don't really know what it is exactly, and then you know until moments later you'll finally get that reveal. There's a fantastic one um, that that we have in this film when. Um, when Juan is on the train and he's just shot a a, a train conductor and thrown him, thrown him out, and all of a sudden he turns around and there's another conductor there with a gun pointed out at him, and he's holding him up. He says, "Put your hands up!" and and Juan puts his hands up, and then suddenly and slowly the train conductor also puts his hands up, and it's like <laughs> what is going on here? And then then Juan kind of looks behind and he sees that. Behind him, there is this other character that we haven't met yet, but we are, are soon to meet in the film, Dr. Viega, um, who has his gun in the back of the conductor. And it was a fantastic reveal, and it's really fun, and it's that is a great use of Leone's uh, skill in playing with his reveal and using that mystery to kind of build his story
0: now, absolutely. And now I feel yeah. like you're setting me up for absolutely disagreeing I am, totally disagreeing
1: I am. With the cave murders. No, I, I do think it's horrifying. But unfortunately, the way that the scene plays out, it is many, many, many minutes before yeah. we finally get the reveal of what he's looking at. And because of that, I find it very off-putting because it, it happens right after another scene where there was... Uh, uh i mean he and and john had just blown this bridge up and killed all of these people that were a part of the uh the to army and uh and then we cut to him in the cave and we're just looking at his face for such a long period of time that you almost lose track that he's actually looking at something and i start thinking like is he just having a really hard time with the fact that he just killed like you know several dozen people Mm. it really I, i found that this patience required for this reveal was far too long and unfortunately i feel like it just doesn't work for me and it's very disappointing so by the time i see it and i understand what he actually had been looking at i feel like i lost the momentum with the emotion that would have happened if i got it you know several minutes earlier
0: you know, that's interesting. I did not have that re- reaction to it, and I, I am willing to write that off to first-time kind of exhilaration of the sequence. It felt like a, a it was a moving sequence to me, particularly the exchange between John and Juan at the end when he t- picks up the gun and walks out, and John says, oh, don't go out there. They're waiting for you. But of course, John hasn't seen what Juan has seen, and so uh, you know, once he discovers that and we get that long exit, uh, John's long walk into the light out of the cave, I, I think is... I, I found very very moving. I think the thing that undoes this sequence is the music. Um, this, this boppy, stupid musical track underneath all this grief it is, uh, this is a great example to me of the kind of weird musical choices that they make throughout the entire film with this stupid score.
1: I like the score. <laughs> 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 but, but I, I do agree that it isn't necessarily always uh, perfectly uh, designed to fit some of the stuff that's happening. I do like the tracks, like the the Sean Sean Sean, like the weird little um Sean theme. Uh, it's it's a funny name issue with Sean and John um, yeah. because he was scripted as Sean, the song was written as Sean, but then everybody calls him John, and like nobody. I, it's like nobody actually knew what his name was as they made this film. And it just ended up being John. But It's par for it, the course in a movie yeah, like this. Exactly. Uh, it just feels like it It fits. Um, I, I like his theme. I like the March of the Beggars, I think is what um, uh, Juan's theme is. I think it all is really interesting music. There are times I think the music fits nicely in the film. But often, as you are very astutely pointing out, there are times where unfortunately it just doesn't fit and it doesn't feel like it's working the way it should. And I feel like there are times when Morricone could have used more than a couple themes in his film, given us some other ones to allow for some of those uh, different emotions that we are feeling feeling over the course of a film, especially one like this that begins with a much more comedic, a uh, satiric look at the world and moves emotionally into a much darker place over the over the two hours and thirty six minutes. I feel like it warranted having a change in music as well.
0: I oh, I absolutely agree with that. And I think this is a score that would work for a movie that's more consistently goofy, has more consistently goofy uh, elements or goofy relationship. I, I, you know, I
1: mean, well, that's why it works in the beginning. Uh, I think I think it works perfectly in the beginning. You got this weird introduction between these two characters and and the throwing of the dynamite and just the weird like, you know, uh, you know, comparing sizes through that whole beginning. Uh, It just I don't know. I felt like the music worked really nicely, but it does require something else
0: yeah I, I think it just comes off the rails and and i don't and I don't like that I didn't particularly like the music, even that it fits i it, it just is not my taste and sure. so the fact that it just leans into more of the the goofiness uh, in the music as the movie absolutely changes tone is tone deaf. and and um so i I was not crazy about that uh, but but point point taken um, other sequences that really moved me the bridge explosion uh was beautiful wow. and tough to watch.
1: Fill my uh my fillings rattle. Where was uh, that? Whose bridge up did they bridge. blow Whose driveway did they blow up?
0: <laughs> it's gotta be something on Google Maps.
1: Uh I just know they blow a big bridge up. And I don't know, I, I, you know, I, I know I heard them talking about where it was and stuff, but yeah. I know um, in uh, the good, the bad and the ugly, when they blew the bridge up there, uh, and I believe we talked about this, there were issues with it as far as um, igniting it before they were supposed to. And it was a little too close to the actors and some people could have gotten seriously injured. This was one where they didn't do that. They did it everything correctly. And I mean, they just blew the heck out of it. And it's quite an amazing explosion that we get to witness. Yeah,
0: it's just carnage. I I imagine this was before uh, animal rights groups got involved in filmmaking.
1: We've talked about stunts with horses on uh, Stagecoach. We've talked about it on even at the Planet of the Apes. There are some horse falls in here, uh, especially in that sequence, as the horses are kind of falling and rolling down the side of this this dry um, river gorge that just look like, well... They probably just pulled the gun out and shot the horse after that one because damn, that didn't look like a safe fall.
0: It was some of that was it was much harder to watch than the particular peril of the the stunt teams is what they did to these animals. It was not it's not great. No, um, it, it is, I'll say it's not the worst that we've seen, but it's not, not great.
1: Yeah, um, yeah.
0: other sequences that, that particularly light me up, <laughs> so to speak, the beautiful shots of the lights, the headlights turning on or the lights in front of the train in front of the trucks, uh, as they were, um, uh, checking the, the uh, revolutionaries uh, in, at night in the rain, I thought was right, an right incredibly before, they, uh, executed e- before the yeah. firing squad. Yeah, I thought that was a brilliantly executed, uh, so to speak, sequence uh, leading up to another really gruesome bit of the film where we see just more and more people um, shot. Now, of course, we actually have this long I think it's later this long kind of flyover crane shot of all of the ditches of the firing squads as, as the,
1: um, <laughs> Oh God, it's tough those, to those watch. Like death pits is what I yeah, call them. It's the death pits. Right. It's, it is a horrifying scene to watch and just uh, looking at kind of the reality of the way a revolution treated people and what happened with people and how, People largely uh, became less than people and just became an obstacle yeah. to deal with. And as you watch these soldiers just cutting down person after person, once he gets once they, they get to Mesa Verde and he kind of gets into this revolution, the rest of the film, I feel like every 10 minutes, if there's not another firing squad, then the film wasn't doing its job, according to Leone because <laughs> holy cow there are so many firing squads so many uh uh you know people getting executed throughout this
0: well and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over the course of the film until we get these the the death pits uh which is a a really gruesome you know you've you've seen this imagery before if you've studied any of these things any of these revolutions and particularly nazi imagery is just um uh, kind of peppered throughout this film so to great effect in terms of that sort of emotional thread.
1: Certainly. And I think if you've ever seen any of the work of Francisco Goya, who I think is just one of the uh, the best uh, artists in history, just some beautiful, beautiful work. Um, he had some art, uh, some prints, in particular one called The Disasters of War, that Leone really felt uh, imbued this whole sense of these uh, these firing squads and the executions and um and that was something that he and his d p Giuseppe rusolini um really used in order to kind of create these looks and I think largely the one you're talking about uh, in the night in the rain was one that they used because he really liked the way that just kind of the 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 stark contrast of the the light and the dark really played.
0: How'd they get it made this was a this was a rougher one
1: it was uh certainly uh while they were um in production on once upon a time in the west um uh, Sergio Donati, who had uh, been collaborating with him on that film, uh, came up to Leone with a, a treatment for this film. He was really trying to get the ideas of, of you know, all this revolution. You know, riots were breaking out in Paris. There was all this idea of uh, revolution and, and left-wing nationalism, uh, particularly among university students and filmmakers. And uh, and they felt like this would be a good story to tell. And Donati certainly um, kind of created that in in the script that he had written. Uh, And then he, uh, Leone and Luciano Vincenzoni worked on the script and really tried to figure out what they were going to do with it. And Leone, he went into this. For some reason, I don't exactly know why, because my recollection from the last film is that he had kind of struck this three-picture deal with a uh, with, uh, producer to kind of get funding for these three films to make these three pictures. For some reason, he said, I'm not going to direct this one. I'm only going to produce it. I don't know how that works when you're doing a three-picture deal, but that's what he apparently said. <laughs> and he brought in, of all people, Peter Bogdanovich to direct this film. p yeah, and um and he came out and they started kind of talking about it and stuff and but apparently they really didn't get along because Leone had a very Leone style with his films even though he was inspired by the works of Howard Hawks and 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 John Ford and all those guys as was Bogdanovich but but Bogdanovich really wanted to do something that was much more controlled and and in some of those Hollywood styles, and Leone really didn't like that because he wanted to be this bigger Leone film. And so Bogdanovich finally uh, quit. He just said he, you know, he wouldn't be able to work with Leone. Then they went to Sam Peckinpah, which is interesting, knowing that we, you know, earlier I talked about how the opening feels like almost this homage to Peckinpah. Right. Peckinpah actually uh, agreed to direct. Um, but, uh, United artists who was financing it, uh, turned, it turned him down, um, because of, uh, I don't know what the financial reasons were. I don't know if he was asking for too much money. I don't really know, but, but that was turned down. And then Leoni brought his assistant director Giancarlo Santi on to direct it and actually started directing the film with him in at the helm. And he did 10 days of shooting. But, um, but Rod Steiger, who had agreed to be a part of this film because Leonie was going to be directing it, uh, he said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play my role or I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this anymore. Actually, I think what he said, uh, is, uh, cause he said, Leonie, why don't you direct this? And he's like, oh no, 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 the Giancarlo doing it. I'm still here. Don't worry. And, and Steiger said, <laughs> okay, that's fine. Tomorrow my cousin's going to be here, but don't worry. He'll do just fine. I'll be here making sure he does, <laughs> he does, does fine. And then that was kind of, I think, the final linchpin to Leone saying, "All right, fine, I will come on board and direct it." Uh, and so it took some some arm twisting, but I feel like that is why this film feels a little sloppier, a little, uh, you know, a little more awkward. Maybe it was because. Uh, his, you know, assistant director Giancarlo Santi had directed some of it. it was, There's was a little more confusion. Maybe Leone didn't want to be at the helm of this one. I think all of those little things lend to this feel of it being just a little messier. We've
0: covered Rod Steiger. We have uh, not talked as at great length about James Coburn. Um and for me that's because I have fewer qualms about James Coburn. I he is a, just delightful on screen even if I'm not always convinced that what he's doing makes a lot of sense.
1: I think he's great. Um he's he's a just a fun actor in the part. Um I love seeing him on his motorbike with his little his little getup. He just uh you know, he just feels like an Irishman even if his Irish accent is a little flimsy at times. I just end up really liking him. And, I mean, I do end up liking his relationship with Rod Steiger's character. I think the two of them are actually a really interesting pair, and I like quite a bit. But um, I think we talked about it last time. Coburn actually had been considered for A Fistful of Dollars, and Once Upon a Time in the West, it didn't end up working out. This character, though, was originally written for Jason Robards because of his role in Once Upon a Time in the West. Right. But as as we learned with Eli Wallach, the studio wanted a bigger name. They approached Clint Eastwood, and um, but he felt it was basically the same character he'd already played, and he wanted to do something different. And he actually wanted to stop doing stuff with the Italian film industry, which I think is funny. Um <laughs> And then then interestingly they approached George Lazenby which is kind of a, yeah. a funny funny choice and then Malcolm McDowell um and finally they settled on James Coburn
0: which is so funny I mean at least between Lazenby and McDowell you can imagine them getting a little bit closer to the accent right yeah Uh, Because accents in general in this movie are all over the place.
1: You know, going back to speaking of accents and and voices, just jumping back real quick to Rod Steiger, an interesting little element, uh, as we know, these Italian films, they record the audio after the fact. They don't run sound on set because they're talking and they're directing and all this sort of stuff. Um, Rod Steiger is of the acting school that really feels, you know, my performance is not just about what I'm doing with my body, but it's also in my voice. And he really pushed Leone to uh, uh, about that because he wanted his voice to be recorded, and Leone finally had to find a happy medium and said, "Okay, we'll record your voice on set, but everybody else we're going to just you know do the old fashioned way." Wow! So, so
0: between Steiger and Coburn,
1: Coburn did the ADR. I guess. I mean, obviously, if they're in scenes together, I'm assuming yeah, they that would they, have to record yeah. that audio. Sure.
0: Right. Uh, we have uh, Romulo Valle is Dr. Viega. Uh, you already mentioned Dr. Viega. He has an, a nice little role uh, in this film.
1: Yeah, he is an actor that uh, I, I feel like I've seen before. But when I look at his credits, I actually don't think I have. <laughs> <laughs> But he's got a face that just looks very familiar. And I mean, he's likely somebody I've seen in film imagery, but just haven't actually seen the films, you know, films like The Leopard or um, Barbarella. Um, You know, he just he has a great film face. To me, he's Peter Sellers.
0: I could not see anything. uh, Every time he came on screen, I was like, this is that's totally Peter Sellers, even though I know that's not Peter Sellers. There's no Peter Sellers in the in the list of names. That w- I couldn't get it out of my head. That's fitting image, but I can see it. Yeah, uh, and there were women uh, in passing in this film. This felt more like a Leone movie, <laughs> right? Either getting raped or dismissed, or dismissed. That's pretty much yep. the uh, strong female roles in Duck You Sucker. Uh, good oh luck. yes, yeah, right. Uh, did this one uh, uh, get any award attention
1: uh, at the David De Donatello Awards? It uh, did win for best director. Uh, Sergio Leone actually tied with Franco Zeffirelli, who was directing *Brother, Sun, Sister Moon*, at the same time. So they did win that, and then it did win a Saturn Award in 2008 for the best DVD collection as a part of the uh, the Sergio Leone anthology. <laughs> Weirdly, it was the Dollars <laughs> trilogy and this film. What? That was the DVD collection. <laughs> That's what they That's collected. A, there are
0: some holes yeah, there. There's... Did anybody tell them there are a couple of, of significant holes?
1: Uh, apparently, that's why it was only a nominee, Pete, not a winner. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a surefire way they could boost their uh, uh, award attention. Surefire. <laughs> the collection that won was the Mario Bava collection, which that's had that, a much yeah. larger uh, collection of, of titles included I'm in that.
0: I'm feeling that. I would have voted for it too. Yeah. All right. to it do at the box office?
1: Well, Pete, this is another of those films with its financial information buried by the passage of time. Unfortunately, I could not find anything about how much this movie cost. The only bits I found were that it was released in the U.K. on October 29th, 1971, and here in the U.S. on June 28th, 1972, opposite Buck and the Preacher, a Western director by Sidney Poitier, his directorial debut, actually, and starring Poitier, Harry Belafonte, and Ruby Dee. This film was moderately successful in Italy, where it grossed 2 billion lira on its first run. It was also the fourth most popular movie of the year in France. And that's all I got. Well, it sounds about right to me, but we're going to
0: see how the chips fall out with this movie when we rank it.
1: We will have to do that, yes.
0: Head over to flickchart.com slash reel, And uh, you can see the list of all the movies we've talked about on this very show. Uh, if you're interested in adding it to your own catalog, just swipe over in your show notes, tap the word flick chart. It should take you straight over to this movie uh, in the flick chart database where you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours.
1: All right. First up, we have the girl with the dragon tattoo, the Numi version or duck, you sucker. Uh, I'm going to go with the uh, girl with the dragon tattoo, please. Me too. We've got Jules La Testa or Christmas in July. Christmas in July for me. <laughs> Uh yeah. Uh Christmas in July as well. We get Ducky Sucker or Near Dark. Near Dark. Here I'm gonna say Ducky Sucker. Really? Yep.
0: Um how strongly do I feel about this? I uh had some issues with Near Dark too. I don't know if you remember that.
1: Hmm. I think we both did.
0: Yeah. Alright, I'll give you uh Ducky
1: Sucker. Ducky Sucker or the girl who played with fire. Girl who played with fire. Yep, I'll say the same thing. Ducky Sucker or Volunteers? Absolutely, Volunteers for me. Yeah,
0: I'm going to give you Volunteers with a heart.
1: All right. <laughs> Ducky Sucker or The Young Girls of Rochefort. I said Ducky Sucker. Yeah, okay. That film was not as magical for me as it was. That, was that, as m-
0: the music was so much better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, Ducky Sucker or Cloverfield.
0: Cloverfield.
1: Or, yeah, I guess I'll say Cloverfield. Ducky Sucker or Major League? Gosh, that hasn't popped up in. Wow. Ever. Major League? Yeah, I'm going to say Major League. Ducky Sucker or Star Trek Into Darkness? Star Trek oh, Into Darkness. I have to go with Ducky Sucker.
0: No, you don't. Come on. I do. This Come is the on. worst of the. Oh, this one's
1: so dumb. Uh, oh, okay. Here we go.
0: All right. One, One two, two, three. three. Scissors. Oh i don't like that <laughs> well don't worry it's only one spot above okay this landed at
1: 323 out of 377 wow. one spot above star trek into darkness all right uh, yeah, so this is uh, a little lower than our last film which ended up in our top top 10
0: <laughs> a little lower how'd this do in your personal flick chart please
1: this one did better for me um i do like this film even though i have issues with it it's not a film that is five stars with quibbles though uh this is a film that landed at 1960 out of 4056 which is about 52 percent uh on my chart
0: okay uh mine landed right at 806 out of 1045 uh which is 23 percent of my chart so if if i were to go by the algorithm uh that that should be flick chart says that should be a one star everywhere else uh i'm i am a little bit more optimistic about this movie i'm going to give it a two star uh over on letterboxd what do you think
1: is that a two star with a like or no like
0: you know um it's a casablanca like if i gave it any thought i i probably would
1: <laughs> i am at a three star on this one three stars with a like Okay. I do I do like this, but I find it to be not counting Leone's very first film, which I don't really count as a Leone film. Um I find this his just his most problematic and uh frustrating film to watch, even though I do get things out of it when I do watch it.
0: I'm fascinated by those things. I think this is an aspirational film. I think it has it it's has big eyes uh and, and it can't always figure out what to do with what it sees. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I am curious by some of the reviews. Again, I don't mean to belabor the music, but come on, man. Uh, this is off of uh, Elvis Mitchell, who writes <laughs> formerly of the New York Times, said that this is more, one of Morricone's most, quote, glorious and unforgettable scores, uh, and sees that Invention for John, uh, which plays over the uh, opening credits and is essentially the film's theme, is as epic and truly wondrous as anything Morricone ever did. And thus, Elvis Mitchell was never heard from again.
1: I can't argue with Elvis Mitchell. I really like it. Well, I wouldn't say it's, it's uh, his uh, his greatest thing that he's done, but I do really like the music. I just wish that there were some other things in here other than those pieces.
0: Yeah. I have to go delete about a thousand episodes of the treatment off my phone now. <laughs>
1: Damn. by Elvis. <laughs> 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 oh. uh,
0: all right, uh, Andy. It was it was it was fine, but I got to tell you, I'm really looking forward to this coming week. What are we doing next?
1: Well, we are going to be. This is a, this quite a big uh, break in films, which is pretty interesting because um, Leone had really been cranking films out for uh, for quite a length of time. It's interesting to to look at his career. And you see this run that he did of films from uh, 1961 through 1971. That's the bulk of his career, um, all laid out from the Colossus of Rhodes all the way up to Duck, You Sucker. And then all of a sudden he has this 13-year jump. And that's where we finally get Once Upon a Time in America in 1984. And that is what we'll be talking about next week
0: i uh, it's been a while since I've watched this movie, and I have to say i'm i've missed it
1: Have you seen the most recent uh extended um version of it that's been restored i'm gonna say probably not uh, it's been, i don't i
0: am i still have not acquired it for our conversation so i'm i uh it's not currently in my collection. What should i get
1: well I would think that that's the version that you're gonna look for I'm curious actually what what they have because the restored version they did, I think in 2012, it played at con um, and then they released it, but they did release it um, with both versions available. Um, The extended, I don't know if they call it the extended. I think they just call it the restored director's cut. And then there's the um, theatrical cut. Well,
0: what I've got here is I don't know. Yeah, I guess I, I guess it is. I don't see any extras, but what I usually get, the, uh, the iTunes version, is three hours and 49 epic minutes.
1: Then that is not the extended director's cut.
0: So what do I have to get? Curses. Now I have to look. <laughs> look for stuff. <laughs> <sighs> All right, well, the search begins, but uh, next week, Once Upon a Time in America, I, I need to actually quit my job, is what you're telling me.
1: Yeah, it is four hours, and I think it's like four hours and uh, twenty nine minutes, nineteen minutes somewhere in there. Uh, that's the that's the extended cut. Okay, it's four four hours plus.
0: Okay, that's the, the beefy beefy <laughs> beefy that, film.
1: It's <laughs> a beefy film. I don't think I have ever
0: seen all of the film. There it is, extended director's cut. Holy cow! Must begin uh, tonight. So we got to hurry. Thanks, Andy. This has been great.
1: Well, folks, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on Patreon.com slash The Next Reel, and you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee.
0: We talk about movie reviews and new trailers, plus we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're
1: discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head on over to Patreon.com slash The
0: you can learn more about us and check out the detailed show
1: notes at thenextreal.com. You can subscribe for free in your favorite podcast app and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at The Next Real. And if you want to get into the conversation
0: yourself, join our Discord channel for a whole lot of movie chat with movie lovers from around the world. You can find the link to join in the show notes or on the website.
1: The Next reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running Instagram. Ben Lott runs all things Twitter. And thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song Ragtime Instrumental as a theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth Andy, as Amazon always doeth. Did they? Did they for you? They have some pretty fun little one stars. I had a good uh, time going through these. I since I went
0: low, I'm I I started high on the review, so I'm in the five stars, and this is this is territory I, I don't tread often.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, and I would like to start with uh, the good Jesse, who writes with a five star, love it. This movie is not as full of stuff you need to view five to ten times to catch in Blazing Saddles, but nobody can hide stuff as well as Mel Brooks. However, it is just as much fun. Wow. Okay. (laughs) That was the whole thing.
1: (laughs) I think also,
0: Jesse didn't like Blazing Saddles all that much.
1: (laughs) Blazing Saddles and Ducky Sucker.
0: I would like to know, Andy, based on that review, how you would compare... A compare and contrast Blazing Saddles and Duck You Sucker by Andy Nelson.
1: You may begin. I thought we just watched Blazing Saddles. We (laughs) were talking about that for an
0: hour. Best podcast ever. What's yours?
1: Oh, I'm so torn because there are several, but I think I'm going to go with this one. It's a one star by uh, Booer58, who just says, Ugh, for the beer and grits type.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What? Who is who is that? A gentleman does not
1: eat beer and grits.
0: (laughs) Oh no, grits demands a more of a mimosa, (laughs) (laughs) something with bubbles. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022.